Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed 249 is recorded live July 9th, 2015. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the west side of the great state of Michigan where we're, it is Shark Week and we don't actually have any sharks. Join me this week. We have hey. Mac. Yeah, that's a good thing. Join me this week. We have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I am doing very well, especially since we don't have any sharks. And also the somebody who is agreeing with us, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great. And not only do we not have sharks, we don't have salt. No, it is salt-free, so if you have that uh, high blood pressure, you don't have to worry about drinking the water. So it's it's not something I really think I, I miss. Now, watching Shark Week on TV, they've had a few interesting shows. They said that some sharks have made it far enough up the Mississippi to get to the Illinois. So that is pretty close. You're not too far away from the Great Lakes at that point. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. And in the beginning, I didn't even give this to you guys. I, I cheated, but we always complain about how nobody follows up. So what I did, since I had a little bit of time before the show, I took a look at some of the Kickstarter projects that we have talked about over the weeks just to see where they were at. So if you remember that Blue Lagoon project that was going to be in Arkansas, they got to they were they were asking for one million four hundred ninety-five thousand dollars. They were able to get 28 backers, and they raised $8,003. So, gosh, that's less than 1% of what they were asking for? Yeah, they got a ways to go then. Yeah, so I think they maybe miscalculated a little bit. I bet he spent more in hiring those two models than he got from the Kickstarter. When you don't succeed or you don't continue, do you have to give that money back, or how do you do that? Well, usually it's held in escrow. Uh, Kickstarter typically... Most of theirs are you have to be funded or reach your initial goal. And if you don't reach that, you don't get any money. Some of the other programs like Indiegogo have options or FundMe where you can set the type of campaign where you actually get money. And I'm looking at this one. Uh, they had one update. Uh, yeah, they they don't they don't really talk about anything. So, so this is the first one he, he created. This was Joel Larson, and they didn't get the funding. Uh, I think part of it was just in the presentation. I, I think they're missing a little credibility, needed to do a little bit more promotion, get some people excited about it, and it just didn't seem to... He, you know, with, with Kickstarter, part of it's getting the awareness out. Uh, what they don't show you on the pages, how many people went to the pages, but it's kind of like iTunes or any of the other Amazon. If you get a lot of people going to it, then it moves it up in the listings, so it makes it more likely people can see it to discover it. So if it doesn't take off real quick in the first 24 hours, it's hard to get any momentum uh, to where it can be funded, and especially a million and a half dollars, I think, the price tag. I think he'd have been better off coming in with tears, even if he couldn't fund the whole project, and then you know fund part of it, and then have stretch goals, which would actually fund the project. 
So he he didn't do a, he didn't do some research because you know to ask for you know he you know one and a half million dollars and not have anything else and all or nothing uh, isn't going to get you there. And then we had the other one we talked about, which was uh, help building help fund the world's deepest pool, the Blue Abyss. This one was over in Europe. Uh, they're trying to fund one hundred fifty thousand to cover ongoing negotiations to finalize architecture and construction plans, which seems to be a little bit more reasonable approach to take. Uh, they still have some time left. They can still fund it. Uh, they've got 11,146 pounds out of the 15,000 pounds target. Now, their project is using flexible funding and will receive all the pledged money uh, the 22nd of July. And then one of the others, the, the last Kickstarter that we have covered in the last few weeks was the CO and the O-Tool dual, glass, dual gas analyzer for scuba divers. This is a company that has done some successful projects in the past, DiveNav. Didn't they, were they the ones who did the Dive Buddy that you bought, Jim? Yes. Okay. So they've they done, so they've done several and they've successfully gone through and got them funded. This one, so far, they've only have 150 backers. They're looking for $25,000 and they're at 42177 with six days to go. So if you want one of the carbon monoxide and oxygen analyzers they have, now's the time to go and and look them up because right now it's not a funding project it's a shopping cart project so you could, you're pretty much guaranteed to get what it is you're buying when we say guaranteed that's within the scope of the program they can still goof up and you get nothing so though that's some follow up so droughts that's kind of going to be a theme of probably a good third of the stories we've got this week is just on water issues in California with the water being so tight it's created opportunities for pool repairmen. The pool repairmen are in high demand. One example is Kevin Wallace, 63-year-old, who dives underwater and fixes pools in Southern California. He fixes rust spots, rebar, crack, structural cracks, and drains. He has a secret concoction. Oh, goodness, bastards. <laughs> I need to have some like uh, countdown music I play when this crap happens. So here's the newest thing that everybody's doing is that they're... Uh, they're growling about the water. I'm growling about the the, the damn ad. There's an I'm I'm reading the I'm reading the article and then an ad pops up and now I can't even get by the freaking ad. Oh. Well, I could read it for you. Nah, I've I've figured a way around it. All right. Um. Uh, so what he does is he makes this concoction. It's a plaster-based c- compound. He says he got some sterilizing agents and hardeners, and he can fix just about any seal within an hour. And the best part is he doesn't have to drain the pool. So he's using scuba gear. And if you look in the photo, I, at first I thought he might use a hooker rig, but this is simpler. He just has a couple tanks, sits them on the side of the pool, and then runs long hose. And then he doesn't goes and does his repairs. It basically is a hooker rig. Well, th- th- I thought a hooker rig had to have a compressor. Nope, nope. Supplied air from some other source. Ah, so even, even though it's still, because I would almost call that scuba, just you're not carrying the tanks. Well, that's like if you have the air chuck at Andrews and you're cleaning the pool, which is what they use this with. So are you hookah, you scuba. Potato, potato. It's really quiet. Are you guys still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm oh, just okay. uh, going through and looking at it. Uh, it's He started his underwater business in 1985, repaired Olympic-sized pools at the Sheraton La Jolla. Uh, he's done the Hyatt Regency, the UC San Diego, big training pools used by Marine at Camp Pendleton. He fixed the rebar in the pools of comedian Don Rickles and Kenny Loggins. And I guess where this really comes into play is with water being so scarce, 
other pool repair places will drain the pool. They'll fix it. So it, you have to wait for whatever patch or fix they've done to dry and cure. And then they fill the pool up, which takes time. And also they'll charge it. So you have to pay for all that water. Uh, he's, he's charging between $900 and $1,800 for a structural crack, 1400 to redo plaster that's peeling away, or $500 just to repair rust spots. It says drain the pool to make those fixes can add a few hundred dollars to the cost, and they have the additional hit to, when they refill the pool. And if you use over what they think you should, you can really get into problems. I can see in the water restriction areas where this could be you know, a lot less expensive. I mean, just paying for the water. But the repair is long and everything else with that. Because you know, what do they do with that water that they drain out? It probably goes down a drain. Yeah, I don't think they go and give it to anybody else. And then you've got chemicals. So whatever chemicals yeah. you have in your water. Sounds like a good business to be in for him. Well, with the cost of water, especially in California, going up the roof, definitely is a cost advantage. It said the Lake Mead is at its lowest point ever. Drought has a silver lining, according to some, and that's an article we've talked about before. It's getting closer to the bomber at the bottom of the lake, now less than 125 feet. Actually, less than 120 puts it in feet. sport range. Easily. That puts it in sport range. Yeah. Yep. They said tourism is rebounding. The drought has brought another odd bonus. As water recedes, the lake has given up its secrets of the, the B-29 bomber. I think the number of people who are going to come out there to see a B-29 bomber pales in comparison to what they're losing for other issues. Said uh, it's unfair to say what, what the lake is disappearing. The lake is what it is. Do we prefer more water? Sure. But even less water, it's still one big lake. Now, the, the, let me see. Down at the bottom, they talk about how much they've been spending in boat ramp repairs. So in the last 10 years, they spent, let's see what it is. They spent $36 million to launch and construct boat ramps. They're planning on spending another $2.3 million just in 2015. That is unbelievable. $36 million. Yeah, can you imagine a two-mile boat ramp? Yeah, well, that's what they're saying is they just keep extending it. I did think it was interesting. He talks about the now dead quagga mussels that cling to a rock. Yeah. It's well below water level. I didn't realize they had it there, but obviously no. they didn't. I hadn't heard of it. And they said quagga, not zebra. Yeah, he says. Yeah. Well, deep water. Yeah. But they've opened the last of the, I, I don't know, do they, do they plan on this? Or is this from when they filled up the reservoir? When they do, filled up, what's that? Do they plan on what? Who plan on what? So they, when they filled up the reservoir, they have intakes at different levels. Yes. So what they've done is they've opened their lowest intake now. As the water levels drop, they've had to open the lower intakes, and they're now on their bottom setting. Well, they're getting pretty darn close to not being able to supply a certain amusement place down there with any of their water, and it's going to be interesting when that happens, meaning Las Vegas. So Las Vegas gets it mostly from Lake Mead? Yes, they do. Yeah, just about all their water comes from Lake Mead. And that's what they said. Whenever that goes down, and it's getting closer now because it used to be 1,000 feet, and I think it's already down to 950. And I thought the 950 was the threshold level for Vegas, but uh, obviously I don't hear any screaming yet. Yeah, probably. Uh, they were just saying a third pipe. Third pipe will keep Vegas supplied. Yeah, so they're on that last pipe, so I don't know if it gets below that. Will Vegas have problems? Well, you could always take a uh, a big pump and uh, pump it out, but uh, cost is going to go up. Yeah, you could. You have to pump it back up. So, the is the pipe level just at what level it needs to be to have the slope to get to Vegas? I'm not really sure. I never did see where the uh, the intake pipes or the exit pipes were for their you know for the water they're pumping out. Yeah, 
article didn't say. And a little bit closer to home as we have some water wars going on in the Great Lakes, and we knew this was going to be coming. They said uh, the pro- prolonged drought has made some communities a little bit more, they put water a little bit higher priority. So Waukesha is trying to utilize a, I, don't, I hate saying using the word loophole, uh, the rules allow for them. So uh, so for those people who aren't in the Great Lakes area, they don't understand, is you have to be within the watershed to pull water out of the Great Lakes. So if your area feeds water into the Great Lakes, then you can also pull out and use that for drinking water. And that's what almost everybody does along the lake. And if you look at a map, Michigan in its entirety feeds a lake in some way or form. So Michigan's all covered. You have you know usually two to three counties along uh, the border of the lake. And then there are some areas where it gets kind of close. And Wisconsin's one of those where it's close. And here is a county that because they are within the edge, so let's say, uh, do they say what it is? The law includes an exemptions in towns and counties that straddle the basin, which is the case for Waukesha. So what they're going to do is they're, they're, they're going through their local state agencies to get approval. And then at some point, uh, all the states and the, the provinces in Canada will get together and decide if they want to fight it or go along with it. But the, the rules specifically allow it. Uh, where some of the debate comes in is do they really need it? Are they doing this just as a preventive measure now, thinking that it's a good time to try for it when they really don't need it? And then also what some people are complaining about is that the water is being used primarily for industrial purposes. Uh, the article to me made me wonder, you know, what caused their problem? They're saying radium compromised water source. I'm curious where that came from. Why right. is it compromised? Well, radium is naturally occurring. Well, it doesn't say that, and that's why I'm curious. So you want to know if it's... Radium-compromised water sources. So is it naturally occurring radium, or is this some uh, industrial processing that may have contaminated it? Yeah, somebody screwed it up, like by fracking, maybe. Oh, possibly. Yeah, we don't know. So I bet this will become more frequent of a discussion if this uh, water issues continue. Well, it's, it's quite interesting. I love their analogy here. Uh, community to, the, the law was made to prevent outside communities from the you know Great Lakes Basin from inflicting death by a thousand straws on the largest body of freshwater this side of the globe. That's an interesting phraseology. A death of a thousand straws? Well, if everybody sucks it out, and then you've got to remember is that, is that in industrial processes, which could be bottling water, you could just be bottling water. I mean, that's what ca- part of California's problem is. They're taking water and they're bottling it and then shipping it to other parts of the country. It seems like if okay. I was a big water company, I would find another source pretty quick. Yeah. But it's probably shipping costs, too. Yeah. You, know, you got such a large population there in California. It's much yeah. easier to fill the bottles there and then ship them around than you know, go up north or Midwest. Well, they're going to have to get that a lot of thought. That article there says the if they make an exception to the rule, they've set the standard for exceptions. Yeah. The thing that surprised me in here was the number that said they're taking 10.1 million gallons a day through the Chicago lock system. Well, oh. Chicago is drawing 10.1 million gallons a day yeah. and then dumping it down the wastewater canal. So it's not coming back into Lake Michigan. Well, that's how because the, they, they reversed the flow of that canal originally. Uh, yeah. That, originally it flowed into the lake. It, it flowed into the lake. And then there was a lock system which connected it to the Mississippi. But the problem was right. is that the canal was so polluted that it was putting polluted water into the Lake Michigan. And Chicago, like everybody else, pulls water from Lake Michigan 
and they didn't want that contamination, so they engineered it to reverse the flow. And that's probably part of what they're doing is a is part of the water is just natural use. They're processing it as sewage, and then that processed water goes back into the canal. And then some of it might be people complaining if the canal moves too slow and gets too stinky. So you keep flushing water through it just to keep the water quality at some level that your citizens will tolerate. And we've talked about that before. That's also the one link, the, the weak link to the Asian carp coming into the Great Lakes is up through the, the Chicago Canal system from, from the uh, Ohio and Mississippi rivers. It's interesting if you look at some of the other feedback down the line. It talks about two essential facts are missing from the story. First, that area will return 100% of the volume it withdraws, meaning zero impact on the lake, which is very different yeah. from Chicago. And uh, Chicago, they say, is 20, 200 times without the return flow of what this other company wants. So that's one, and you know, you don't get all the stories, so it's sort of interesting to read this. Yeah. And then they were yeah, talking about even though Chicago uses more, they do not, they're not able to um, put back the good water like you just mentioned. Yeah. So it's like Chicago is even worse, but Chicago is on the lake, and it does come within the, the framework of what you already have. You know, in one aspect, I'd like to complain about it, but the kind of the thought about it was not only were you putting in, but if you use wells, you're draining from the aquifer anyway. Yeah. So really, what's the difference between just sucking it from the ground and then the water table filling it up, or you pull directly from the lake? Plus, I don't want their sewage in Lake Michigan. We, we have enough of that with other communities, so I'm happy to keep theirs out. But it's well, then you, to the conversation, you know, you got to Chicago diversion, but it's you know the water's just leaving the Great Lakes and going to the Mississippi Basin, so it's still everybody's yeah. water. That's your argument here, and it's like. I didn't realize the Supreme Court made a consent decree here that is allowed, uh, the Lynx is allowed to divert on average 3,200 cubic feet per second per year from Lake Michigan. Who is allowed? The Like the it Chicago? Said, under the Supreme Court consent decree, Lynx is allowed, now Lynx, I don't know who Lynx is allowed means, uh-huh. but they're talking half of this is for navigation on the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal and half for domestic use. One is returned to Lake Michigan, the other one isn't. And that talked about, like you just mentioned, uh, the reversal of the Chicago River moved the practical watershed boundaries so that any water falls west of Lakeshore Drive goes to the Mississippi River watershed. So uh-huh. it's it's not necessarily it is complex. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So it's just something to keep an eye on so it doesn't get worse. And at some point in the future, that that could change. They may decide. You you know it will be it will change. Yeah. Well, it's water's the new gold. It is. They said. Yep. Uh, I was watching some, uh, with, with the, I almost call them fatalists, but some futurists, and that was one of the common themes is water, how water is going to be valuable, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. going to be more important than gold or money is going to be water. You know, Eventually, yes. Yep. And we you can t- live without gold, but you can't live without water. You, yeah. That's true. But if you got gold, you can always get water. In most cases. Maybe. Depends <laughs> how much gold you want or have. So the uh, speaking of, of Great Lake water, the water temperatures this summer, they said, are trending to be warmer than last year. Now, let me jump in here real quick. The paper yesterday mm-hmm. said just the opposite. Really? Yes, and I wish I had yesterday's paper oh. so I could look at this because I'm looking at the values, and they were using the Silver Beach references for the last month. Uh-huh. It has been four degrees colder than last year. So one of these guys is BSing. 
Okay, so this one was reported well, by... Well, either, either that or they're both right. They're just taking the readings from different places. Well, I think that's kind of been the discussion with, with temperature measurement has always been the accuracy of the devices, where it's being changed, yeah. and how you edit your numbers to fill in the gaps because you, you have limited data source. So you only measure what you can measure, and then you assume that everything else between your measurements falls in place. And then when you improve your accuracy, you try and go, well, if I'm seeing this over here, can I also make that assumption with my other data set? And that's where all these numbers come into play. Uh, so that, yeah, that would have been interesting, Mac. I'd have loved to have seen that. Cause- yeah, I wish I had I kept that. But I looked at it because it talked about, because, you know, we're already saying what's the temperature around the buoy mm-hmm. and around the piers. And it said it has, for this month or for a month period from June until this point, is four, four or five degrees cooler than normal. Yeah, I'm going to try and zoom in on this image that they have in this article because it could be that they're both right, just depending on where they're pulling it. So 2015, well, I mean, according to this graph, they're making it look like it's warmer, but it depends because, like, if you if you look out in the middle of Lake Michigan, so if you go right between you know St. Joe and Chicago, and you're right in the middle, it's warmer this year than last year. But if you look and you're closer to shore, it seems to be about the same. Yeah, there's a comment under comments on this one. Actually, if you're swimming near a shoreline, the assumption is wrong. Upwellings this weekend has kept many locations in the low 50s. Those who took a boat to the middle of the lake, the headline was accurate. But what they were trying to do, and this, okay, the data set's from NOAA. What they were trying to say was that the lake as a whole was several degrees warmer. Which, like, I, if you look at Lake Superior... If these numbers are accurate, the other question is how are these how are these numbers being measured? Are these buoy numbers or are these satellite numbers? Because a satellite number can only get surface temperatures; they're not able to penetrate down to the bottom and see what they get. So, if you have calm weather, we get pretty good stratification, and you're going to have a hotter surface temperature. But it might not it might not be reflected down below. I like one of the comments here. It says, where's Al Gore when you need him? <laughs> yeah, he's probably warming up other bodies of water. Yeah, taking a piss at him. <laughs> I didn't say that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Crumungeon. Oh, well. You, you get a few passes. I mean, my, my complaint with Al Gore is that he's not an expert. He got the whole thing going, and he's a profiteer. So whether it's wrong or right, all he's done is try to, to do it in the way that makes him the most money, which is exactly what's wrong with politics. So Patty launches inaugural uh, Woman's Day dive in July. So the Patty Woman's Day dive is scheduled for July 18th, 2015. International event is geared to encourage female divers of all levels to dive together in the same day. To bring the equivalent to life, Patty is collaborating with women dive groups, female industry icons, and Patty dive centers and resorts around the globe to host events on almost every continent which reads just like a PR event. So I'm guessing that California Diver got the Patty press release. Patty is saying, while female diver population is growing, we feel there's still a lot we can do to enlighten women about the major, the myriad of opportunities diving affords. This is Kristen Vallette, Patty's American Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Our goal with Patty Women's Dive Day is to highlight significant, meaningful compre- contributions female divers have made in the sport and encourage more women to explore the underwater world. More than 225 events across six continents and 46 countries have been scheduled. And I'm all for it. We want as many women sure. diving as possible. You're not, I, don't, yep. I don't typically hear guys grumbling about women diving. In fact, I can't remember hearing anybody grumble. Not at all. 
And then I think was it last week we were talking about dive therapy? Several times over the last month or so, yes. So here is an article that actually explains why they should be. Oh, goodness, another damn ad. See, that's going to be a drinking game now, is that every time I say I swear about an ad, then you had to take a drink. So here is uh, the author of the article, Cody Unser. She says, I was paralyzed almost two decades ago at age 12. I understand full well how difficult it is to absorb the cliches like take it one day at a time. For me, show, slowing down the 24-hour period made the process of coming to terms with my paralysis more difficult, not easier. Mentally, the feeling of wanting to be numb, paired with confusion over which future might bring, was so daunting. Tomorrow seemed too far away, yet it came too quickly. So she says, I was 13 years old when I first dove. It was a full year after I became paralyzed. Scuba diving was the only thing that gave me peace in the world where all I saw in every turn was no. Christopher Reeves always said, nothing's impossible. I fully understand the power of those words. Oh, I, I never under, fully understood the power of those words until it surfaced my first certification course. As a young girl, I was trying to answer questions about my own existence as a person who was paralyzed and felt only strong sense of responsibility, but also deep connection with these young soldiers. Did it mention how she became paralyzed? I didn't see in there where it said it. Oh, autoimmune condition that left her paralyzed oh. February 5th, 1999. God, Transverse myelitis, M-Y-E-L-I-T-I-S. That must be something that attacks the nervous system. Yeah. Well, she's got a great constitution to get out there and continue doing what she can do. Yeah, she says uh, one of the frustrating things is to witness how scuba diving helps wounded veterans heal, and yet to know that funding for programs like these has been limited. As a graduate student studying, studying public health and learning and how to qualify for what programs are cost-effective, I appreciate the importance of evidence-based research, but I also understand how painstakingly long it can take to prove a program's benefit. The fact remains we are losing those who have protected our country's values at an alarming rate to suicide, and we owe them a fighting chance for a full life. Yeah, there's a second page to that article that mm-hmm. was quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, more than you need to go through here, but it is quite interesting. And you have it posted, so somebody else will take a look at it. It's a very nice, a nice article. Yeah, so it will be in the show notes. You can follow it. And it's the Cody Unser First Step Foundation. And then also, uh, I, something I didn't pay, uh, share with you guys, I found it afterwards, but Diveheart is currently involved with a study in Key Largo, Florida, and they're working with the Midwestern University and the research for scuba theory and its effectives on individuals with autism, traumatic brain injury, and chronic pain. So what they're doing is they're actually re- trying to research and validate the conclusions to help them with funding. So I think it's probably about time we, we get Diveheart back on again. We'll have to call up Jim Elliott and see what he's up to and how the organization is going. Then we have Old Boats, which is a another. So this is Malcolm Daily News. This is just north of Detroit. So Old Boats are helping local nonprofit. Damn ads! <laughs> oh frick! Oh, uh, they broke the internet. I'm glad I'm off next week. Just remember, this is, I'm off next week. <laughs> I could chew glass. Uh, so We Are Here Foundation and Staples have teamed up to donate more than $350,000 worth of new office furniture to a number of recipients in Malcolm County, including several schools. Our primary mission is to create a healthier and cleaner southwest, southeastern Michigan waterways and educating kids. This is according to Tom Cleaver, Tom, Tom Cleaver founder of the 18-year-old nonprofit organization which is committed to environmental cleanup and children's education among the CUNY environmental events supported 
by the We Are Here Foundation's National Coast Cleanup. Over the years, they have helped to remove more than 1.25 million pounds of trash from Lake St. Clair. Volunteers, scuba divers, and heavy equipment are used to remove debris that is found along the shoreline. Foundation also works to provide scholarships for students in the area to attend college. Funding for the organization is derived through donations of boats. Residents who have old boats they no longer use or have no need can can uh, donate them to the We Are Here Foundation. We Are Here Foundation refurbishes them and then uses the proceeds to clean up shorelines and educate kids. Cleaver says the boats are not the big expense, expensive boats, but eyesores in people's garages. They accept small, fixable, medium, and large boats. Once uh, one boat received in the past foundation was a 78-foot-long World War II PT boat. We're going to have to keep a look on their website. Might be a good spot to pick up a boat. Uh, every Staples uh, Market is approved charity, and We Are Here Foundation is ours. So the local Staples is kicking in and supporting them, and they'll take your boat. Serves a good purpose. Another one I've seen is Boat Angel. See those along the highway, but I don't know. I I believe they're a charity, but I don't know what the charity is for. I wonder if he's any any kin to Wally. Wally? Yeah, and Beaver, Beaver oh. Cleaver, remember? <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Or June Cleaver? It took me a second. Okay. I'm just curious. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the UK, the uh, Sussex coastline is home to 700 wrecks from the Great War and Heritage Lottery funded Forgotten Wrecks, the First War exhibit, which is now going on. If you're near uh, the Seven Sisters County Park Visitor Center, you can go and take a look. Until November 3rd, artifacts from shipwrecks along the four years of historical research by the Maritime Archaeological Trust will be on display. Amanda Brown said uh, the project is starting to turn up all manner of personal links and stories connected to these sites, both research and from relatives of survivors and casualties. Some of the discovered ships include the SS Tycho, the SS Port Cary, who were both torpedoed by German submarine UB-40, SS Moldova, HMS Ariand, and U-boat SMUB-81. I love some of the artifacts I have in the pictures there. Well, I saw the doorknob. <laughs> is that what you call the fire? Oh no, there's a firing. No, trigger. there's a picture of a doorknob there. Is that all the way? Is that the in the back there? I didn't. I saw the first picture of him in front of the glass case. Uh huh. You'll see a brass item, another item off yeah. to the right. That's a doorknob. Oh really? That firing pin though from the submarine looks pretty neat. Yeah, I, I like that big chunk of brass. Oh yeah. Now is that for the? You think that's for the torpedoes? Yeah, let me see. Let's see, the brass firing trigger was part of a machine gun aboard SS Serana, and it was torpedoed south of Catherine's Point. Broke into while being towed. And if you're looking for it, the halves came apart uh, almost a mile apart. Wow. A little bit of spread there. Yeah. And as we alluded to at the beginning of the show, if you happen to have cable here, yeah, I don't know if it's in the rest of the world, but maybe it's just the U.S., Every year for, gosh, it's been the last 20 years, one of the cable channels does Shark Week. And it's a way of getting people who don't normally give a rip about anything in the water excited to at least pay attention. And they talk about sharks. Lots of shows over the week. Oh, come on. Did I really just... Here it is. So what is probably the worst place in the world to to view Jaws? Out on the life raft or an inner tube <laughs> in the middle of a feeding fin frenzy off of Australia or New Zealand. Yeah. But or, it, or in the uh, tunnel uh, of the shark tank. Yes, that would probably, those would be two, two places. 
that would be really bad. Uh, a draft house in Austin, Texas this weekend. Uh, was it, are they doing it? So they, they said, uh, is bring back their widely popular Jaws on the Water event. And that's this Saturday, July 11th. And again, Saturday, July 25th. <laughs> they said they, they'll, they'll take the two weeks between the shows to clear out any victims and reach on the water. <laughs> the the draft house first experiment with this combination of uh of of film and, and watching uh back in 2002 so what we're talking about is a they they have this big inflatable screen they have on shore and then you watch it from the water floating in inner tubes just hearing the music and if my feet were in the water it would get you get that little shiver up your spine well i i think that uh there'll be a higher percentage of water to urine concentration when the move by the time the movie's over with. Wow, I that's almost like a dare, isn't it? <laughs> I dare you to watch the movie. Looks like they have a pretty good turnout from the photos. Again, these will be in the show notes. You can get to them on www.scubaobsess.com. And we have been keeping up in the show notes, and I'm slowly going back through and getting the others filled in. As a side note, you're talking about how far have sharks gone up the Mississippi? Mm-hmm. They're saying uh, bull sharks are commonly found along the Mississippi. They have traveled up the Mississippi as far north as Illinois and are regularly spotted in uh, Indiana's. Let me see if I can get them because that's interesting. Indiana's something. Hang on. And it doesn't show me where that is. But bull sharks grow average 7.5 feet, weigh up to about 285 pounds. Healthy appetite, aggressive reputation can be docile in some environments. Yeah, they're, they're known for being able to tolerate very low visible visibility in rivers. Yeah, they, they, their ability to tolerate fresh water is rooted in salt retention. So if you throw, what, baking soda on them or something, doesn't that make all the salt come out into the baking soda or something? <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just grasping straws here. <laughs> we have a, you just have a little baking Not soda. Not too many straws. It would be a death by a thousand straws. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of some smart-ass way of uh, neutralizing salt. but Yeah, it sounds like they've been weight hell up here, bull sharks anyway. Yeah, they get quite a bit up. Uh, I was trying to remember, it seemed like a few years back we talked about at the turn of the century somebody had rumored that near Chicago there was a bull shark, but we were never able to validate the story. Well, I, I know I've been up north before whenever they found them in the locks, and that's because they dumped it over a ship as it's coming through. Yeah, that's somebody. to stir for a while. That's somebody being a smartass. Yeah, that, that works. <laughs> that, that's still scary. Do you care if the shark got there naturally or somebody dumped it? It's still a yeah. shark in the, in the lake. Yeah, and if he's alive, that's totally different than if he's dead. Yeah. Well, then here's a shipwreck that's been there for quite a while. This one's out of Canada. The USS Kyle is in Harbor Grace, is falling apart and no longer considered safe. They said the ship is running out of time and residents of Harbor Grace are calling the provincial government to help salvage it. The 102-year-old ship has been grounded in Grace Harbor since 1967, has been the town's biggest tourist attraction ever since. The Kyle is rusting and falling apart and is no longer safe to go near. Uh, They have a quadcopter that flew over it, and they couldn't believe how bad it actually was because from the shore it doesn't look that bad. He used the drone to record video of the shipwreck. They said the deck is gone, the wheelhouse is caved in. I look down holes and it's full of water. You know, over the years of driving back and forth to Harbor Grace and you're seeing this poor ship just rusting away, you think it kind of deserves a, a better ending. 
The ship is owned by the, the province. Newfoundland and Labrador government owns the Kyle. The last time money was spent in the ship was 18 years ago when it got a new coat of paint uh, for the Cabot 500 celebrations. However, Harbor Grace's own town council wants the government to start taking action to preserve what's left. We're afraid that it's going to that people going around, pieces are going to start falling in. The boat itself, you have to be care- very careful you're walking to because you could end up going through. Well, why would you be on the boat? So they uh, have- we've, we've done things similar to that in the old days. But we're crazy. Oh, okay. So there's difference between crazy and stupid. If we do it, it's crazy. If they do it, it's stupid. And, it and makes you, you wonder, though, if you'd have left it out there for 18 years, the government would be on your case to either fix it or take it out of the water. Well, 18 years? This is 67. That's like like 48 years. Well, I just know here it just said Newfoundland and Lab- Labrador government owns the Kyle. The last money was spent 18 years ago. Yeah. yeah so, and so it's their job. It's their problem. So fix it. So in 67, so it was only 50 years old. It spent half its life just sitting there. And, yeah, if they've decided that it's important enough for tourism, I think it would still it would look better underwater myself. Yeah, but if it's already, I mean, it's already in the water there, right? Well, I think what it is, it got, it got, you look at it, it looks like it could float, doesn't it? Well, I'm looking at that one aerial shot, and it's obviously grounded. But you wonder if it would take a little buoyancy; it's there, raft it up, and take it out and sink it. Be a lot easier than you know, and make a wreck out of it. I think get a lot of participation for a wreck. Well, it seems like people have. Just used it kind of like a big billboard. Interesting, though. One of the comments said, if it's a rusting, if a rusting eyesore is a town's biggest tourist draw, doesn't say much about the town. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Okie dokie. Well, some people would say the same thing about Power Eiffel Tower. Yeah, that's a... It did originally, but it sure does bring in the money. Yeah. If you can get people to it, more power to you. So... If we happen to be out by San Francisco, about 42 miles southwest of there, in about 2,600 feet of water, the USS Independent is is sitting. They said the aircraft carrier was a target ship in an atomic weapons test at Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands during the war. Then in 1951, it was loaded up with 55-gallon drums of low-level radioactive waste and then scuttled. How about this? Let's take a crapped-up boat, add some more waste to it, and sink it. Wow. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, just dilution is the solution, wasn't that the saying? To pollution, yes. Uh, the USS Independence was rediscovered by a team of researchers led by James DeGaldo, Delgado? Delgado, director of the Marine Heritage at the National Oceanographic and Atmosphere Administration. The marine archaeologists used sonar from the autonomous submarine to find the wreckage, but with the ship's radioactive past, the scientists wondered if it was safe to actually explore. Uh, that's when they went and talked to uh, Berkeley Labs' Kaya Vetter to, to better understand the radiation hazards. Vetter's the head of applied nuclear physics at Berkeley Lab, nuclear engineering professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and the co-founder of the Institute of Resilient Communities. They want to know if they could ensure the safety of the equipment and see if you could pick up a container if you went down there. The short answer that Vetter said was yes, neither the submarine nor the team was ever in any danger of contamination. So the reason is that water is an excellent radiation shield. Underwater radiation will only extend several inches from contaminated materials. Unmanned research submarines stayed at least 100 feet away from the wreck during its search. They said another reason that there was no risk is the size of the contaminated site with respect to the size of the ocean. 
while contaminated rust particles from the ship are released and transported by water, dilution factor of the ocean is enormous and therefore nullifies any radioactive effect. Did you take a look at the picture of uh, it in San Francisco Bay in yes. 1951? How is that floating? <laughs> That's such an ugly thing. The only person who would appreciate that is a diver. Exactly. And if it was underwater. It, it, which is where it ended up. Yeah. They should bring it up closer. Well, remember, they, they said they were going to put it out a couple of hundred miles from shore, and they didn't. <laughs> Somebody's like, hey, I got beer money. <laughs> let's, just, let's just stop and we're done. Who's going to know? They'll never find it. And they said the other thing to consider was the half-life of the radioactive materials. They said the isotopes were cesium-137 and strontium-90 both had a half-life of about 30 years, which means that after 30 years, half the isotopes responsible for the initial contamination uh, transmute into non-radioactive articles. And since it's been 60 years, it's only about a quarter of the radioactive concentration of it was originally. That's still more than I want to get close to. It kind of depends on what the, the top-end radiation level was, which they I don't think they say. No expedition collected the sonar images from a distance, but Vetter hopes to someday work with a submersible that gets up close view of the ship, the 55-gallon barrels, and the radioactivity. Such a project requires a specially designed detector to read the radiation from the site. Vetter explains it would be exciting to build a dedicated system with some advanced technologies to figure out what is sitting down there in that old vessel, which it doesn't seem like it would be too hard to put some buoys on it how deep is it 2500 feet. feet yeah yeah 2500 feet so it's down there quite a bit yeah do a techie dive right <laughs> yeah yeah that's a i think one minute in the bottom would be about five days coming back but you're right as that was one ugly looking ship when it went down out and then gold is up for auction seems like this is mel fisher yeah you can get a detailed listing and some nice photos if you follow the link that i sent you guys on skype okay you can buy the catalog which is only 28 dollars you <laughs> domestic if you just want the catalog to see exactly what they're selling and descriptions and details of the 40 items they're going to sell so what they're really hoping to do is to get above gold prices because from watching all these uh pawn reality shows i've learned that it doesn't matter what the gold is they just give you whatever the ounce rate for gold is going at that time so anything above that is gravy, and that's what they're hoping for. So let's take a look at some of these photos. So this is Guernsey.com. And the first one looks like a butter knife with with impressions on it. Is that just a way of marking, like... Marking like I, the bars. Yeah, so you'd have the bars, and then you'd stamp them. So that's a gold bar. That's lot 51. That lot 77 is interesting to cross. Gold disc, just like another version of the gold bar. There's a chalice, gold chain. I bet they're going to get a few people who bite on some of these. Yeah, rich people. Smuggler's silver coin clump. Something else, huh? Yeah. Well, if you you know if you just if you're going to have gold, why not have gold that has a little history to it? But do, but doesn't Central America want their gold back? I have never understood that part about who owns the gold: the Spanish people or the Aztecs that they stole it from. Yes. <laughs> well, then this last one, which I didn't copy, but I know you guys have seen it. MSRA announced that they discovered a new large intact shipwreck in the waters of Lake Michigan off West Michigan during a recent completed survey in the spring. They said they haven't confirmed the vessel's identity, but they expect to soon. And part of the reason why they're not saying what they think it is is that they're hesitant with all the other shipwrecks that have been recently found in controversy over the identity. 
They said it appears to be one of the deepest shipwrecks yet found in Lake Michigan at nearly 400 feet. In the photo, the dark shape is a hull. White acoustic shadow is the profile of the vessel. Pretty high uh, profile on it, too. That's what I was surprised of, uh, surprised with. Yeah, it's got a, if you look closely at it, you can almost see a stack in one area and a pilot house in another. Yeah, uh, so I'm pretty sure that they've got an idea of what they want to call it. They're just, they're hoping to get some, uh, I'm guessing an ROV. They didn't specifically say that. Would somebody go tech dive into 400 feet? I don't no? think so. You definitely CCR range. You know, you're you're out of most people's open circuit range. Yeah, that's. But I, I'll I'll bet they're looking for an ROV to do that one. Yeah, yeah. Unless there was something you really wanted a diver down, that seems to be pushing it. You certainly could do it, but there's a lot of logistics involved. So I don't I don't know I don't have any idea what it is. But have you heard any rumors of speculation? Cora, maybe. Well, that was my first. No, too far. Right. No, it's it's not the Chikora. You say because it's too far north? Well, a comment was made that it's not the Chikora. They already said they found that, and it proved not to be. It would not surprise me if it's a ship they've been looking for for the last four or five years. So they... I ex- but we'll wait and see what they name it. Yeah. Now, do you think they're going to name it when they discover it, or do you think they're going to wait for their show in the spring? Um... That's a good question. Yeah, a lot depends on what they can put together from a production standpoint of, you know, to make an interesting story to tell in the spring. Yeah, yeah it seems they're, they're that would... not big on keeping secrets that long. You know, it, it's more of let's do the announcement, let's put it out there, and then we'll put a program together in the spring and let the program sell itself. Yeah, because the program will be just as successful whether you they've pre-told the, the name of the, the boat or not. Yeah, I mean, that program sells out. That's standing room only every year, so there's no need to hype it any further, in my opinion. Or they just need to go to a larger location. Or charge yeah. more for tickets. Or do two events. Well, one of the ways you keep uh, prices up, is though, is to make it rare. So selling out is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's more fun to play to a sold-out crowd, too. Well, congrats to them and everybody in MSRA. And then we also had... Uh, Kevin from the Mud Club announced a rediscovery this week. Let's see. What, what was the name of that one? I feel bad. Condor. The Condor. Now, that was a shipwreck I talked to my dad about, and he'd actually dove on that one. And his his comment was, based on the location of where it's at, there's so little water that go or current that goes through there, that one little misplaced fin, and you stir the silt up, and it never settles down. But the video that Kevin had shot for that was really nice. I like the, I like the video. Looked much clearer than yeah, I expected. He's done, a, he's done a great job on that, and he'll be doing a presentation on it sometime in the future. So we'll keep an eye on that. I went and saw a great presentation tonight. Robert Myers did a nice presentation on shipwrecks of Berrien County. It wasn't just limited to Berrien County, but shipwrecks of the Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes. And you know, he told a nice. Nice story about it. Uh, his The big thing he was talking about is how many times for these shipwrecks, it wasn't just a single event, but a compounding of errors or a compounding of things that finally led to the sinking. Yeah, I mean, so much like diving, you know, you can usually deal with one situation, but if you don't deal with the first one, and then you get a second, and then you get a third, it's too late. Yeah, I, I, I think probably the exceptions to that are those really horrific storms. Or collisions, which it may be that 
one ship is innocent, but the other one is so guilty that it makes up for the innocence of the other one. But yeah, you, that's mm -hmm. that's exactly right. And you look at almost any industry that seems to be the the way of tragedies. You can usually get by any one event. So if you got a vessel that you haven't been maintaining and it's slowly leaking, and then you go about the wrong time of the year, and then you overload it, and then you run it with half crews, you know, all those items stack up, and you have something. So did he talk about mini shipwrecks, or was it anything in depth? Um, no, I just kind of went through a, you know, history starting about 19, I'm sorry, 1835, 1839, uh, for the St. Joseph River, where the government, I'm not sure exactly who, but came in and started the North Pier, you know, built the North Pier and then changed the way the river went into the lake. Uh, had a nice, nice, uh, drawing there of the way the river used to run turn south and run down so along and the bluff where the, the shoal uh, yeah where the shoal used to be outside the mouth of the river and how ships used to have to come in and approach it from the south and then make a 90 degree turn to run up the channel uh talked about the old lighthouses that were in saint joe and you know uh actually saint joseph got a lighthouse the same time chicago did and probably was a larger city in exactly. 1839 than Chicago was. I'm always fascinated and, uh, by that just, quote. Yeah, yeah, continued on. He, that was not his statement. Uh, I'm just comparing to, I know in 1812, Chicago had, it was a fort and had 20 people in it. Yeah. And this was 1839, so you're not looking, you know, that much longer, 20 years later, 25 years later. Yeah. But it... Uh, you had the the westward expansion. I, I just, I, I love watching the history programs and that they were talking about Daniel Boone, you know, and at one point Kentucky was the Wild West, and it slowly moved westward in through Missouri, where he relocated. So it's not surprising that Michigan would have been a little bit larger early on until Chicago took off. So it's, it was a, a very interesting presentation, and we talked for a few minutes afterwards. And, uh, very just a, a very interesting evening. You know, I, lo I love the history of the the old shipping in the area. And, I think that's one reason why I'm such a. I love diving this area so much because there's so much shipwrecks and so much history to it. He had it, some great photos of the Chikora. Beautiful nice. shots of the Chikora and the interior of the Chikora. It's something I don't think I've seen any photos of the interior. Everything I've seen has always been outside. Uh, very plush. Very plush. I wonder if that would have, would that have been similar. Have you ever been in the Kilwatton back when that was up in Sagatuck? No, I missed that before they pulled it out of there. I didn't get a chance to get into it. Yeah, because that, that's what I remember going through with the kid that it was, it just seemed, it felt very plush. You know, very decorated, mm -hmm. carpeted. Mm -hmm. Plush tufted chairs, mahogany walls. Yeah. Overstuffed cushions. Yeah. You know, grand piano. Now, do they have an exhibit that uh, is, goes along with this presentation? No, this was just part of a summer lecture series they're doing. But I appreciate your sending the link because it got to me in time that I was able to get out and go tonight. So we have uh, a couple photos of the week. The first one is uh, Von Wong captured an amazing portrait deep underwater. And this was a photographer, Ben Von Wong. Uh, he's done pretty interesting photos with uh, the facts. He's done um, a photo shoot called Making of Ballantyne Presents Von Wong's Underwater River. Uh, what he did is he created a portrait shoot, the set of a crew built 
above ground installed 30 meters underwater just to a few feet off uh, the hydrogen sulfide. So they were they're doing some diving and at the bottom of this area had hydrogen sulfide, which would look like an underwater river. And so they went and did that. So 30 meters down, so 90 feet, they're taking divers, lighting crews, cameramen, and then models who don't have scuba gear and they have them pose. So he did, he took a, he made a scene of a Chinese cormant fisherman hand working a bamboo raft. God, it's, it's hard to believe. Do you see the photos? Yes. So what do you got to do to get a, a model to, I guess you pay him. <laughs> a lot of money. Here, go down here, hold your breath, don't breathe out, and then we're going to take this photo. At 90 feet. At 90 feet, exactly. And somebody be near you to give you air when you need it, maybe. Yeah, just signal. Images were captured the Nikon D800 using a Nauticam underwater housing. Beautiful photos. Wonder how much you had to pay the bird. The bird? Yeah, I'm, Second I'm, picture down. One on the raft. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm thinking that uh, he didn't fare too well in the deal. Yeah, just tie his legs there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that way he won't swim away. Yeah. Well, maybe he maybe he could have eaten some of these grubs in this next one. Glowing grubs light up underwater caves in New Zealand. Some other amazing photos. So here's a cage, a, a cage, a cave that's half flooded in New Zealand, and the grub, which I'm not even going to attempt the Latin name. You can read the article yourself. So this photographer, Joseph Mitchell, he was on an expedition to one of the caves, and he went into some of the hard hard to access caverns, and he used timed lighting along with some soft blue leds just to make out some of the features a little better but uh, those are some other amazing photos and then here's some cool scuba gear sub c image equipment is taking part in the hmas sydney shipwrecks expedition i think that probably cost a couple of shekels yeah they're announcing it but i don't think they gave it to them come on internet you can do it safari said it can't open the page sounds like a personal problem to me so what was it, Mac, from your perspective? That's a side scan sonar that they were that they were using? Or is that a sub a sub bottom profiler? Well that one sure looked at, but I just sent you a link mm-hmm. of one of the cameras they're using. You see it? You might want to click on that one. Okay. Let me click on that link. I've got the the other original link. Because these are pictures of actual items. Freaking interesting photos. Yeah, they must have underwater ROVs or doing the photos. So I think I sent you the gallery shot. Oh, I see what it is. It's the one cam 3D feature. It's a 10, 10x optical zoom, and it works even in 3D load mode. It allows the full use of a sensor at all times. It has uh, far zooming levels. Uh, the light sensitivity and image quality not change, unlike digital zooms. And if you're so, looking at any of those, if, if you hit the go button, there's no audio. At least I haven't heard any. It it's quite interesting. You're looking at the thermal vents, which are quite deep. Very interesting and excellent, excellent photos. So the mushroom, the mushroom vents, the one you're talking about. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This is a nice little camera. So they've this. This is like your GoPro on steroids, then. Very nice. So this is like what you would put on an Alvin ROV or or something that's going way down. One would think so. Pretty nice though. Yeah. Yeah. We could. We'll, we'll take two. People in audience land can't really see very well. <laughs> yeah. So the the resolution it's capable of doing is a true. 1,920 pixels by 1,080 with 3D video. So it must be using two sensors to pick up a 3D image. And it's in a ca- a, a, a pressure canister. It looks like a, it's like a cylinder or a, di- a really good dive light. So subseaimaging.com. And then Kodak's got 
their version of an action camera that will actually do 360 video. They're pitching it. Uh, Google has announced that they've got a 3D service that works with their Google goggles, which is a cardboard type attachment, but eventually they'll have a, a full VR set. So the Kodak Pixie Pro SP3600 action cam. So what it does is it has a camera that's capable of doing a full 360 degree view and it has available an underwater uh, housing. So this is something that I think I'd I'd like to try. Yeah, two fifty three hundred dollars. Yeah, it doesn't seem too expensive. They're not saying how deep, at least in this article, that it can go. So I don't know if it's water resistant, just meaning that you drop it in the water, it's going to be fine, or if it's if it's a true waterproof housing. Well, I think we've done it, boy. We went a little long this week. I might have to trim some more if we get this many next time. Kind of go over my my limit. So did anybody get any diving in this last week? I I got in the St. Joe River, actually in the yacht basin for a little while, doing a boat inspection. That was about it. And last Thursday, we did the uh, Thirsty Thursday dive. Cool. Where did you end up going for that? Um, we did it in Magician Lake. Nice. Then, Mac, you sound like you're, you're recovering from a cold. I uh, really had a chest cold. And we did put the Thursday Thursday dive on Fresh Mud, so it is on the club site. No pictures, but uh, write up on it. Nice. So that's mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. You can click over and view the details. I'm sorry, Jim, you were saying? No, no I just appreciate Mac putting that, posting that for me. And then I saw we had some interesting uh, discussions with some of the Mud Club members talking about locomotives sunken lakes. Seems like every two or three years this comes up where people are start asking if we've dove this lake and is it true there's a train in there. Have we ever found a train in a lake? Train parts. Train parts. Yeah. So is that a case of the train did roll into the lake, but they recovered it? Yes. Okay. So is that the one that that, uh, they were talking about off US-12? Yes. Okay. So the train's no longer there. It's just like wheels and stuff. Yeah, there's parts and pieces there. I did a whole history on it. I took aerials and the whole schmear, and that place is nothing like it was 100 years ago. I mean, that used to be dual tracks back there and everything. It was quite interesting. The old, the old, where the old uh, train station was before it burned down, then afterwards, and then when they put a boxcar down there instead. It, it was really interesting just to look at it, but that's also the same place that we found where they used to make uh, soda bottles and they'd fill them up. We found the, the area that oh. was littered with those. <laughs> <laughs> And we, we did not uh, bring up but a couple because it's backyard of some pre- people who now live there and really didn't want people to come over there and uh, disturb their their area. Yeah. And most people wouldn't like it because it is extremely, extremely, extremely weedy. And I'm not just talking weeds. I'm talking heavy-duty lily pads. Oh, okay. And it's hard to do anything on the bottom there. Yeah, because what you're going to have to do is you're you're pretty much going to have to rip out the lily pads, do some mowing yeah. to, to and, get and up. they're not going to want you to, to do that in their backyard because then they're going to have stinky crap floating yes. up by the shoreline. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, if you're doing the proper grubbing technique, you you do tend to bring up a little bit of sulfur with that. Right, and, and people forget that that lake was probably two thirds drained when they put the new dam in or the spillway, if you want to call it that, several, several, several years ago. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to go look for train parts, that would have been the opportune time because that is one muddy, silty, yucky bottom. 
you know, you're, you're talking about people don't remember how it used to be. I, that's a feature I think I would like to see Google or somebody do would be instead of just having Google Earth where it shows now, have something where you can go back in time and see what buildings or structures were based in a year and maybe even river. Imagine being able to look at the St. Joe River there where the pier is and being able to drag a, uh, a slider that move you forward and back in time and you could see how the river changed course. Because a, a lot of that, the island, there was a lot of canals there in St. Joe that were dug. Some have been filled in and some no longer look like canals. But if you look in the old drawings, they were obviously man-made and straight. Everything across from where St. Joe is looking across, most of that was marsh and swamp. I have some interesting pictures from really old that if you look at it, you can't believe what's there now because it's all filled in. Yeah, so like where the dog park is and Clementines. I'm talking on the Benton Harbor side. Oh, like the Benton Harbor the side. Basin is, yeah. where the granary is, uh, like where the railroad tracks are. There used to be two sets of railroad tracks in a different location. Uh, it's quite interesting. Look at the old photos. Yeah, yeah. It'd be it'd be nice to have. Uh, and that's another thing with old photos would be if you had that service where you, you would have a location is also have a time with it. So you could go back in time, see it's a photo, and then look and see what that is. There's a show on Discovery now where they're they're doing something similar, where they're overlaying images with history. Well, people just do not – everybody knows the big uh, hotel there in Mackinac, right? Yeah. Everybody mm-hmm. does the not brand. realize that you had one just like that where Tuscornia is now between yeah. Tuscornia and Jane Clark. It was called the Tavern, the Plank, until it burned down. You're talking 1900. Yeah, well, every town, uh, Saugatuck used to have the pavilion. They had a huge yeah. pavilion there that was well-known, and that burned down in, the like, I think the early 60s. It's just so soon we forget. Yeah, well, and we don't know. We only know what our memory is. And if you don't study or have access to the photos or the images, you forget. And we forget that uh, a lot of it's what our entertainment is. Uh, that was I was reading an article last week, and they were talking about uh, there was a, a band instructor who lived here in Bering Springs, and he was the band leader for four different bands, and two of the bands were company bands. So before you had TV and radio, everything was live entertainment. So you so if you could entertain, you were in demand. So you didn't have Hollywood stars where millions of people are watching them. You had local stars or local celebrities, and you could make a living at it. So there were thousands of people, probably in every county, whose living was just entertainment, and that's kind of gone away. So any dive plans coming up this week? I'm still trying to recover. <laughs> well, that's the important thing. I hope to get out on Sunday. Yeah. And I am going to be feeding the mosquitoes, and I've been looking at the weather report, and it looks like every day next week is going to call for some amount of rain. So I'm hoping it's just going to be those little 15, 20-minute showers and the rest of the day will be nice. But there's a few of the little cloud symbols with little jagged things coming out from underneath them. That makes me think they're either very evil jellyfish in the drawings or they're going to have thunderstorms. I'll take a poncho. <laughs> yeah, I plan on it. So that's what I'm going to be doing you know, tomorrow afternoon, all day Saturday, is getting ready to go head out and play with the mosquitoes. So that means we won't have a show next week. We'll skip that and we'll come back. And the following show is going to be episode 250. And I have no idea what I'm going to do for it. And I will not be here for the 23rd. Sorry about that. Okay. I uh, should be in Oshkosh. Okay. Whatever. Unless I can do a remote. Maybe a remote. 
Uh, we can try. We'll see. You know, maybe maybe we'll do two weeks vacation and I'll I'll produce something. We'll just have to see. So uh, watch our Facebook page, uh, www.facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. The new and improved Scuba Obsessed website is out there. And I, I'm continuing to refine and do some back-end work. So you're probably not seeing a whole lot of things. Uh, different ways to listen to us. We are on WRVO Radio, the Reno Viola outdoor radio network and if you're on the website you scroll down the bottom and you will see that you'll see the different ways you can listen to us so we have the wrvo radio network right there at the bottom clicking on that will take you over the site we've got stitcher.com which is another way to listen to us we have itunes um, and i'm starting to add some links to alternate ways so if you go and you look at the show notes at the top there's the actual download you can download an mp3 if you want to do it the manual way you can subscribe to a feed uh, so you can get updates all the time and then we can also have some streaming options available so you guys have anything you want to plug well i'm good for right now oh we yeah, did I'm good. we did update some numbers on the preserve website so the the water intake we now have some good numbers on that so that's up there and what I've been doing is, uh, as I go through the, the site and add GPS numbers is we have GPS numbers in each of the, I think there's like five different ways you can express longitude and latitude. So depending on your device, you want to make sure that you're in the right mode and you've putting in the right numbers. Because as we frequently find out, you lose the, use the wrong number, you don't find what you're looking for. And that's kind of one of the indicators. If you end up on land, then that's probably not a, uh, one of the shipwrecks or structures. So we've got uh, we got a couple couple jokes. Um, we'll do the first one. If the first one doesn't pass, maybe we'll we'll go do the second one. Did you get any feedback from that one last week? No, uh, but I my numbers aren't in yet, so I don't know if we how many unsubscribes we had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we we could have lost some listeners. Definitely lost some brain cells in the process, but we may have lost some listeners. And I, and right now I can't even remember what it was. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm drawing a blank. That's last just last week's show notes, and I don't I don't have them up. Well, if you guys are ready, we'll get going. I'm ready. Ever ready. So Dave and his girlfriend Jessica go on a scuba uh, camping trip. After a good dinner and a bottle of wine, they retire for the night. They go to sleep. Some hours later, Jessica wakes him up and needles her sleeping boyfriend. Dave, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. I see millions and millions of stars, darling. He replies. And what do you do from that? Well, Dave ponders for a moment. Well, as astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I des- observe that Saturn is in Leo. Herologically, I deduce that it's time for approximately a quarter past three. Meteorologically, I suspect that we're having a beautiful day tomorrow. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and we are a small and insignificant part of the universe. What does it tell you, Jessica? Jessica is silent for a moment. Dave, you are an idiot. Someone stole our tent. Wow. Chirp. Sure. <laughs> cricket, cricket. So, so I take we need I think to go. You better try the other one. We'll go the backup one. Okay. Go to the backup. Okay. Two bad almost equals one good. Yeah. If, if that's the objective. <laughs> After retiring, one of the mud club divers went to the social security office to apply for social security. The woman behind the counter asked the diver for his driver's license to verify his age. He looked in his pockets and realized he had left his wallet at home. He told the woman he was very sorry and he'd have to come back tomorrow and go home to get it. The woman said, unbutton your shirt. So he opened his shirt, revealing curly, silvery hair. She said, the silver hair in your chest is proof enough for me. 
and she processed his Social Security application. When he got home, he excitedly told his wife about his experience at the Social Security office. She said, you should have dropped your pants. You might have gotten disability, too. Yeah. Mac, that sounds like something your wife would say. <laughs> I have no comment. <laughs> so, so two bads. Uh, we'll have to let us know. So drop us a line. Let us know if these passed. And until next time, which will be episode 250, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And drop us a line. But please don't drop your pants. recording has been completed.